This episode is brought to you by R1RCM, a leading provider of technology-driven solutions that transform the financial performance of hospitals, health systems, and medical groups. R1 delivers proven, scalable operating models that power sustainable improvements to net patient revenue while reducing operating costs. To learn how you can build a future-ready revenue cycle today, visit us at www.r1rcm.com slash Beckers. Hello and welcome to the Beckers Hospital Review podcast. My name is Will Riley from R1RCM. With me today is Dr. David Lebarski. David is Vice-Chancellor and CEO of UC Davis Health. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Will. It's great to have you here. Can we start by just, can you start by just giving us a bit about your background, please? Uh, certainly. Um, I am by training a academic cardiothoracic anesthesiologist and uh, have served in a lot of different roles over the course of my career. I'm a system CMO, a CEO of a 1100 physician practice, uh, ran malpractice funds, et cetera, uh, from previous organizations. And um, now I'm uh, overseeing a, about a $5.3 billion a year entity, which includes a very highly ranked school of nursing, a highly ranked school of medicine, and Sacramento's number one medical center and a rehab hospital in Sacramento. Wonderful. I'm really looking forward to learning from you and listening to you today. Um, we're going to talk about a number of topics that are top of mind as we head into 2024. Um, and we'll start with a, a nice easy one, um, payer relationships. <laughs> <laughs> what is easy? They're not great. <laughs> yeah, they are. Right, moving on. Um, so, so payer relationships have always been difficult, right? Um, but it seems at the moment, that they're in a period of particular contention, I would say. Is that is, is that true? Is that what you see playing out? And why do you think that is, if so? Yes, I, I do see it playing out. And honestly, um, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with the entire financing of healthcare in the United States of America. And it starts with companies that are insurance companies that are gatekeepers who make money by denying care. That is in the essence what is going on. And what they have figured out is that by routinely issuing denials, which frustrate patients especially, create incredible anxiety and create incredible administrative burdens on health systems, they get to keep the money for longer in their pockets. And since there's a reasonable rate of return on cash now, they're laughing all the way to the bank and to their stockholders. And so I think this is a real issue and the only way to wrest that money from the insurance company seems to sue, be able to sue them these days. It's not the way it used to be. Um, and I'm very disappointed in that particular aspect. Uh, we have a couple of lawsuits ongoing ourselves. It shouldn't be that way. The other thing is recent statistics show that about 17% of claims submitted are not just paid, when in point of fact, Final adjudication drops the number of really contested claims down to 0.5%. So that's a little crazy, right? That so much administrative burden and cost and time wasted is spent on things that everybody knows will ultimately be paid and a process which can be 100% automated if we had the right partners on the other side of the table. 
So what's changed then in the last couple of years? Is this is this a symptom of the post-COVID healthcare economy? Uh, it is. I think um, people are just looking to maximize their profits. And they do have a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. But that's not the right model for what is either a public or a common good, which we determined in the United States. Everybody sort of has a right to health care, certainly in the emergency room. And in California, everybody pretty much right qualifies for Medi-Cal if they need it. So they really have decided it's a universal access. It's not the way insurance companies are acting, and they're not helping us reach the ability to provide equitable access and equitable care to everyone. Well, what impact does this have on your uh, clinicians and your administrative staff? Well, I have to tell you, um, I've been a patient in the last few years. I'm getting on in years, not that far on, but you know, occasionally I have to see a doctor and there's not an MRI that I, I do a lot of sports. There's not an MRI I've gotten that wasn't originally denied by my own health plan, but it's administered by an insurance company. And they put you through all these hoops or they make the doctor write an extra note I'm worried that I'm going to get a $5,000 bill, right? Because then if it's not covered, then you get the rack rate, right? You don't get the, the discounted rate. I can't imagine what it's like if you're an ordinary patient without the resources that I have to call up somebody and say, hey, you need to call the insurance company and make sure they know that this was really an indicated test. You know, they have to jump through 53 hoops patients to want to offset that. It's not right. No. So what's the answer? Is it technology? Is it just going to come to a breaking point and we reset? Um, I think the only eventual fix is to disintermediate insurance companies from the entire system. And I'm not a big fan of a single payer system because I don't really like the government administering everything. Um, but I think that there are uh, several economic factors um, that will push us to at least maybe addressing the fact that everything that goes on with private insurance companies is about a transfer tax to cover insufficient government payments on Medicaid and Medicare. What we need is payer parity. We need to say everybody gets the same amount of money, right? No matter who you're taking care of, then all of a sudden there'd be less cherry picking. There'd be less skimming by some of the private company entrants into the marketplace, right? Who uh, avoid taking care of Medicaid patients, some Medicare patients. And it would mean that people could focus entirely on the medical needs of the individual human beings who present to our institutions for their care. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in the wrong place. On the, uh, we're on the wrong side of history, if you will. Most other advanced economies across the world have figured this out already. There are a lot of different flavors. There are a lot of different ways to address this, but none of them include private insurance companies mediating between those who need care and those who give care. Mm -hmm. In the short term, tactically, what, what are you doing? Um, at, 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 Engaging at, lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Um, and uh, because the slow pay, no pay, constant denials has reached a crisis point. There are Got numerous it. organizations across the United States um, that are having to engage in legal action to recoup justly documented, appropriate care and to get paid for it. So that's number one. The second thing is these large payers have now managed to circumvent 
in my opinion, the medical loss ratio demands, which says you must spend 85% of your premiums on actual delivery of medical care. But now that they own some big ones, a large number of physician groups and can take the profits from those and a pharmacy benefits manager, and they can take the profits from those, well, all of a sudden, that insurance company can actually overpay their own physicians and their pharmacy benefit manager who don't have these same restrictions and siphon away monies that should be being paid to providers to take care of people. Mm -hmm. So we really need a fundamental restructuring. And I'm, you know, Congress is looking into all of this because this is a shell game that's being played in my personal opinion. I don't have proof and I'm not naming any specific insurance companies, but I see this as a major issue in the financing of U.S. healthcare right now. Let's shift gears slightly to another big topic, uh, the regulatory framework that health systems are operating under. You are working in a mixture of local regulation and federal regulation. Again, that's an area that has always seemed complex, but at the moment seems shifting in the sense that um, the regulatory, the uh, the creation of the regulatory agenda seems volatile. Uh, the enforcement of the regulatory agenda seems very variable. Is that how you see it? And how? what are you doing about it? Well, again, I see uh, big corporations at play. They've changed the narrative that basically says the high cost of healthcare is due to the greedy hospitals. Now, with the exception of some private companies, most hospitals are actually not-for-profit. And not-for-profit doesn't mean you don't need any money because you have to constantly replace your facilities and provide unfunded care and underfunded care to Medicaid populations. And they focus only on this very, very narrow description. And they paint hospitals with their 1% to 2 to 3% margins as the problem when insurance companies are raking in 20% profits. How, how is that possible? Mm -hmm. So- Again, I go to, first of all, the regulations that are being proposed seem to demonize the hospital industry and the providers like doctors and advanced practice professionals. And it's entirely wrong. That is not where money is being stripped out of the system. And we have to recognize that, number one. And then we have to recognize that the patchwork of regulations um, between Medicaid and Medicare and state and county and, and other organizations really need a central clearinghouse. So they're not contradictory and they're easy to follow, right? They shouldn't be hard to follow. I'll also point out that regulations are good because when you are cash crunched, as many organizations are in the United States, um, because of the penury of our insurance companies, they may cut corners and they shouldn't cut corners, but sometimes they're forced to. So regulations prevent those corners mm -hmm. from being cut too sharply. So regulations do have a place in our, our business. Let's end with um, a, a quick discussion on the patient, uh, who's obviously at the heart of of, of the whole the whole thing. Um, how have you seen patient expectations change over the last few years? Be that from a technology perspective, be that from a just a societal perspective. Um, well, I think it's a great question because from the time I began training decades ago to today, the change is like a tsunami. It is unstoppable. It is an expectation of A, customer service, number one. B, immediacy, 
right? People want what they want, when they want it, where they want it, how they want it. Just like, you know, I'll order sushi and it'll come exactly the way I've asked for it 15 minutes later to my doorstep. They have that expectation for healthcare as well. So I think those are two really big things. And the third thing is they don't want the paternalistic health of the past where you come to me and I tell you what to do. What they want is a valued and trusted partner who knows them, who will create a joint and shared decision-making opportunity for how aggressive they wanna be in treating their diseases, balancing the side effects and the risks of treatment versus the ongoing disease, understanding how it's gonna impact their joy of living and to make a good decision for them. That important relationship is a different expectation than the past and one that um, I don't think we're doing a good enough job in meeting. Two thirds of patients say that's what they want. Two thirds of patients want us to actually include all the data they're collecting about themselves on their Fitbit and their Apple Watch. I have one right here, right? No one ever asks me, well, what is your resting heart rate? What has your pulse oximeter shown? You know, do you have any aberrant beats noted on your iWatch? I mean, even my own doctors don't ask me that. They should, because I know all that information. I think they should consider that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of opportunity here to meet patient expectations without a whole lot of extra work, just by changing our own attitudes. Hmm. Hmm. And perhaps to round us out, um, can we talk for briefly about access to for the no. most- the most No, we can't talk about access. Oh, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> as it relates to uh, the most vulnerable yes. populations. Well, first of all, access in general is difficult because healthcare and the consumption of healthcare is almost an infinite need, right? If you can get better and better and more and more advice about everything that bothers you as we all get older and older, which we are, right? We have an aging population. It's almost impossible to meet that need via the traditional model. And I'm going to get to the underserved population in a second. So, we, we really must do is create an information technology transfer capability so that patients can self-investigate, self-diagnose, and self-triage, and even occasionally self-treat themselves before they even progress to a virtual visit, let alone a brick and mortar visit. We need to change the idea that I'm gonna call the doctor and go to the office. We will never meet that demand. There will never be enough providers. We must change the work that we do not just work more or train more people. Right. So that's number one. Then you have the underserved. Their ability to master and employ that level of technology may be less than more highly educated, more uh, people from higher socioeconomic demographics because they have the opportunity and they have the devices and they have the high-speed internet. So as we design changes in access, and we empower our patients to make more of their own decisions and to avoid even coming to the doctor, um, we need to bring along those who have traditionally been underserved by creating digital health navigators, people who can reach out to communities that may not have that expertise and serve as an intermediary, a tutor, a coach, um, in their own language with knowledge of their own cultures so that they can get what they need at the same level as those of us who have mastery of computers and iPhones and iPads can. It's not an easy task, but again, we can do it. We just have to set our mind to it. Thank you. Dr. David Lebowski, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you.